0: Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Galatians chapter five. Okay, so a little bit of a um, little bit of a confession this evening, as I've preached through this book. Um, I, I love the book of Galatians, and I've enjoyed our series together. But really, all I wanted to do was get to Galatians five and six. Um, this is the fun stuff. This is this is just this is the great part of the epistle, uh, beginning Galatians five, going through Galatians six. It's just exciting. It's fantastic, and um, the rest of it's been good too. But but I'm I'm a little bit partial to these last two chapters, liberty and leaven for all of the context within which we have spoken in our Galatian series amidst all of the doctrinal and practical points which we have made the primary focus of Paul's exhortation has been a tireless defense of Christian liberty against the onslaught of legalism uh, we might even say a tireless defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ the church twice pictured in scripture as a body uh, as a body, it is made up of individual parts working in harmony to make that body function. And like any body, it can be weak as individual members of that body are unable to perform their tasks or unwilling to perform their tasks. Or as they weaken and others must compensate. So, will you think of this in terms of your body? And if you have um, trouble with your knees, then it might end up causing foot pain or back pain. If you have trouble with your back, it might end up causing leg pain. If you have trouble in one area because your body is having to compensate for the weakness, it might cause troubles in another area. And we see that same idea in the body of Christ, that as a person is not fulfilling their role, others are having to pick up the slack, uh, and it's it's perhaps weakening the, the body as a whole. But far more dangerous than just individual members not doing what they've been called to do through their spiritual gifts. Far more dangerous to a body is when something foreign to that body, something from without that body, attacks the body and seeks to destroy it. And this is the nature of false doctrine. This is the nature of legalism as we see it in Galatians. This is the the nature of a false gospel. This is the nature of false doctrine. And one of the many false doctrines which eats away at the body like a cancer is legalism. Defiling that body's purity, rendering it impotent as a shining light to the world. Now Paul has rebuked, he has warned, he has taught, and now he exhorts. And he says this in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast, Paul says. That word found only eight times in the New Testament in the original language. And literally means in the Greek to remain stationary. With the implication of perseverance in a cause. To stay the course. To stand fast. To stick to your guns. We might say... Paul would exhort other churches in a similar way along the same mindset. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, Paul says to the Corinthian church, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he said to the church at Philippi, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly Beloved, And as we consider these uh, among several other places where this phrase stand fast is found, the Corinthians were exhorted to stand fast in the faith. That would be sound doctrine. The Philippians were exhorted to stand fast in the Lord. That would be his name. That would be sound doctrine. And the Galatians are now exhorted to stand fast in their faith. Liberty. Why in their liberty? This is sound doctrine. With the same zeal that we defend the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the same zeal that we would defend the Lord Jesus himself, Paul is calling upon us to defend the liberty which we have in Christ against the dangers of a legalistic false doctrine. Christ did not come to subject us. He came to liberate us. The Christian life is never presented in the Scriptures within the context of can't do. It's presented in the Scripture of what we ought to do. It's not a path of bondage whereby we are limited. It is the path of freedom whereby we are finally and blessedly empowered to serve Christ. We're free from sin. We're free from guilt. We're free from dogmatic, liturgical, religious expectation as a requirement to find favor with God. As a contrast to this freedom then, Paul says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That word entangled literally means to be ensnared or to quarrel against. And the idea of a yoke would be that which we would consider um, oftentimes in the context of oxen or, or of animals. Where um, a farmer would would yoke up his oxen to a plow or a person would yoke up their, their um, oxen to a cart. And that would be a means of binding them and a means of controlling them in order to get them to go where they need to go. And as we talked about... Last week, as we've talked about the liberty that we have in Christ, we don't see the, the concept in the scripture that Christ is behind us, jabbing us with a sharp stick. We see the idea of Jesus Christ walking before us and leading us in the way that we should go. We are willing followers of a very kind master. The temptation toward Christian bondage is strong and it's persistent. It seeks to ensnare us in its bondage to keep us from living in the freedom with which Christ has purchased for us. Paul declared to them, to this church, that they are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And if we are free, then we must live in that freedom. We must stand in that freedom. So Paul continues, and he says in verses 2 and 3, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Now, the cornerstone of the Judaistic form of legalism was circumcision. An act required in the Old Testament law, but nowhere commanded of the Church of Christ. And Paul tells them plainly, as plainly as he possibly can, that Christ will not reward them anything for the fact that they are circumcised. And as Paul speaks of it in this context, he's literally speaking of the, the form of Judaistic law. He's not saying that if you get circumcised, then, then, then you can't have Christ. But what he's saying is if you are seeking to be circumcised as a manner or as as the the means by which to incur the favor with God that would bring you to a place of eternal life, then Christ does not profit you. In fact, Paul has mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 and 3 and 4 that those who seek to submit themselves to the law in order to gain the favor of Christ are in fact submitting themselves to the law. Not just for the blessings, but also for the cursings. And this is a very, very important point for us to understand in regard to those, even in today's world, who seek to submit themselves to the law. There's a very, there are several very large movements of Christians who would claim that the law is necessary for this age. One of the most prominent of these being what's called now the Hebrew roots movement. And what they almost universally fail to appreciate is that the law it comes in as a whole. You can't take the law in parts. That if they would submit themselves to the law and feel as though the law is is valid for today, then it comes as a whole. It comes all together. The blessings and the cursings, the obscure and the common. And as James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. There's no one without question who truly wants to rest under the standard of the law because it is an impossible standard for which we can attain or unto which to attain. So Paul says in verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you whosoever of you are justified by the law ye are fallen from grace now paul is not telling them here that they will lose their salvation if they submit themselves to the law those who are who are, are in christ who are legitimately in christ are in christ whether they submit themselves to the law or not those who are not in Christ and seek to submit themselves into the law, they they are not in Christ yet and still. He does warn them, however, and the concept in verse 4 is that they their lives in Christ become of no effect to them. That as they persist in living by the law, they by default must live in rejection or at least, um, as we might say, um, denial of grace. And if they are denying grace, then they are denying the very essence of Christ's life and death, the very purpose for which He died. And so Christ becomes of no effect unto them. They have rejected grace in deference to the self-righteous standards of legalism and are thus living the life of the legalist. And here's what it means. To, to fall from grace, if we, if we take this, this phrase at its word, it means Guilt. It means self-righteousness. It means the constant compulsion to justify yourself. These are not characteristics of a life lived in grace. These are characteristics of a life lived under debt. And these two lifestyles are wholly incompatible. And that's the idea here, that if you seek to be justified by the law, to whatever degree you do, you have fallen away from grace. You are allowing the guilt of the law. You are allowing the the compulsion to justify yourself. We talked this morning that one of the dangers of remembering the past is remembering our sin and living in the context of sins that have been forgiven. That if Christ has forgiven us, then, then we need to recognize that and not rest under self-condemnation for sin that Christ has released us from. And as we would seek to sit under self-condemnation, there's a little bit of this in there. There's a little bit of that concept of falling from grace. That what you are actually doing is you're actually trying to punish yourself to feel worthy enough or to feel sorry enough to work your way back into favor with God in some context. That is falling from grace. That is clinging to some sort of debt, some sort of self-justification, some sort of self-righteousness at the Expense of the grace within which Christ desires us to operate, much rather, Paul says in verses five and six, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ, Je- for in Jesus Christ, excuse me, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh. By love, We don't bring about our righteousness. We live in the power of the Spirit as we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We affect righteous actions through the fruit of the Spirit within us while we wait for the day of our regeneration. We'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit in a couple of weeks. We're, we're working our way there. It's in Galatians 5. Uh, it won't be next week. It should be the week after that. So then... As this is the case, as we are walking and and living out the fruit of the Spirit, in Christ, circumcision and uncircumcision are indistinguishable. Neither physical state really matters at all. What is distinguishable, what does matter, is faith which worketh by love, the Scriptures tell us. And the word worketh here in the originals literally means... To be active or to be effective. What Paul is saying here is the same thing that James would say in his epistle. That faith without works is dead, being alone. Faith is not joined by love in the process of our justification. Our justification is by faith alone. Paul tells us, however, in 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, And now abideth faith, hope, charity these three. But the greatest of these is charity, love. The supremacy of charity, of sacrificial love over all things in the economy of God must be understood. Love is the supreme virtue. Now let's make one more important connection. Faith works by love. Is active Faith is made active by love. Love is the effective force by which faith operates. If faith is the boat, love is the wind that pushes the sails. Now consider Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 10 where Paul says this. O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this... Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. Sounds familiar, right? Some, some, a few of the Ten Commandments there. He says, And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Are you beginning to see the connection? As Paul has spoken so vehemently against the law, now he's talking about the necessity of love. And as we look through his teachings in the scriptures, we find that love is not only the supreme virtue, but love is the fulfillment of the law both verse 8 and verse 10 tell us that that love is the fulfillment of the law and as he says the law he's not just speaking of whatever we want to call the law of Christ he is speaking of the Mosaic law he just quoted 5 of the 10 commandments and he says if there be any other commandment it is briefly summed up in this one statement thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and then he goes on to say for love is the fulfilling of the law the law that these Jews Judaizers said you need to keep you have to keep every jot and you have to keep every tittle the the law which Paul calls bondage and serves only to make the work of Christ of none effect to cause one to fall from grace this law is not abolished in us when we live and stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free this law is in fact fulfilled in us through Christ by means of love Paul will tell us the same thing, by the way, in verse 14, which we'll get to next week of Galatians 5. So here we are, submitted to the Spirit of God, waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith, which worketh by love. And we'll talk more about submitting to the Spirit of God in the weeks to come. And as we submit to the Spirit of God and live in the grace of Christ, we in fact, through Christ, fulfill the law as we love God with all of our hearts and as we love our neighbors as ourselves. As you exemplify the love of Christ to one another, as you exemplify the love of Christ through obedience to Him, you are fulfilling the law. Now Paul then makes three very um, succinct statements, three just straightforward statements, which comprise verses 7-9. through 9. He says this, Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This morning we spoke about Paul's frequent connection between the Christian life and a race well here's another instance he tells them, you were doing so well. You were running well. You were running that race. You know that race that he talked about? He probably taught the same thing to the Galatians that he was teaching to the Philippians. That that as he exemplifies the Christian life, he does so as a race. And he says, you were running well. You were running this race well. You had laid aside the weight. You were running with patience. You had um, forgot those things which were behind. You were pressing towards those things which were before. You were pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus, you did run well, you were getting along fine, you were finishing the course, You, you had sound doctrine, you were growing in that doctrine, and then something happened. You got bogged down, something hindered you. You stopped obeying the truth. At some point, you missed it. You lost the path. You started faltering in the run. Who did that? Paul asks. Who hindered you? That you should not obey the truth. Who caused you to falter in your obedience to the truth? The persuasion not to follow the truth. This persuasion to follow the law. This persuasion to yoke themselves under the bondage of this false gospel. Paul says it didn't come from the one who called you. It didn't come from Christ and it didn't come from anyone who represents Christ. It couldn't have come from Christ because it acts and works against Christ. It came from a man, it came from man's ideas, something is hindering them, he says. Something has weighed you down at some point along your jog, you picked up a ball and chain. You picked up something that is hindering you from your progression. You you found the wrong path. And see, here's the thing about man's ideas. No matter how good they start out. No matter how good a man's ideas can start out. No matter how close to doctrine a man's ideas can start out. If they're a man's ideas, then they can quickly and easily become corrupted. That's why we stick to this book. Because as long as we have this book, and as long as what is being taught is out of this book... And as long as you can open this book and understand the same things that are being taught, we're safe. But when man's ideas start getting into the book, and a person takes a small little snippet of scripture and then goes off and says all sorts of things which sound really good but aren't in the book, those ideas can quickly become corrupted, confused, and muddied. They can begin to hinder. Man's ideas can take solid theology and Bible-based teaching and leaven it. Bloat it with concepts which might sound good but are filled with confusion, misappropriation of ideas, and ultimately error in theology. So Paul warns here, this final statement, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. Leaven is an agent that produces fermentation. In bread... It causes the bread to lighten and thus to rise as it causes a fermentation and it lightens the bread by forming air pockets. In general, however, the Bible reveals leaven to be that which influences and inspires a change. It doesn't always state that leaven inspires negative change, although by and large in scripture leaven is seen negatively. However, we do see at least one instance in Scripture where leaven is given in a positive light. And so we understand that leaven is meant to reflect that which influences and inspires change. In this case, Paul is warning about a negative change. That just a small bit of error... Just one errant man in the church who is in a position of leadership can permanently change the character of a Christian or even of an entire church. We can sometimes get the idea as Christians or as a church that as long as we stay away from the big-time errors, we'll be okay. As long as we stay away from uh, real, you know, the, the heresies and the apostasies, the major ones, we're okay. But Paul warns here that it doesn't take a huge error. It doesn't take a big doctrinal shift, an obvious compromise to bring a Christian or to bring a church into huge error and compromise. Compromise is a very slippery slope and often compromise is not very steep at the beginning. It's a slippery slope, but it's one where you can still kind of have a little bit of traction on. Compromise at first seems manageable. We'll we'll give a little here, we'll give a little there. We can stop it before things get too far. But by the time you realize that things have gotten too far, the slope is already too steep. And you're already sliding down it. Now Paul has given his warning. Now he tells them in verse 10. I have confidence in you, through the Lord, that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Through it all... Paul tells them that he has confidence in them through the Lord that they will agree with him on these matters and that they will choose to obey the truth. And this, this is a reflection of the fact that he does recognize them to be believers. He has confidence that as he rebukes them, as they recognize his love for them, that they will bring themselves back under the umbrella of sound doctrine. On the other hand, he says, that leaven... The one who has stirred them up against him and against the truth, Paul says, he'll bear his judgment. Paul didn't know this man apparently, but he says, rest assured, God will deal with him. You correct yourself and he'll bear his judgment. Peter told the church that the churches that he was writing to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We aren't called to sit idly by while false teachers ravage the church of Christ. Certainly we're not called to sit idly by. We must speak out for the truth. We must call men back into the light. We must call men back into the truth of God's Word. But the teachers themselves, those who are persisting in teaching false doctrine, knowing full well that they are wolves in sheep's clothing, they will go from place to place and person to person. They will always, there will always be someone to listen to their heresy. There will always be someone to buy into false teaching. But rest assured, they will be judged. And their judgment will be definitive. As we consider our consideration, our text for this evening, uh, we read in verses 11 and 12, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. Paul reiterates that this teaching is not his teaching. That if he was preaching that believers needed to submit to the law in circumcision, why would he be suffering persecution at the hand of the Jews? The offense of the cross is nullified if salvation is by works. For the offense of the cross is this. You can't do anything to right your relationship with God. That's the offense of the cross. That you are a sinner and you can't do anything to right your own relationship with God. You You can only flee to the cross. You can only cling to the cross. You can only humble yourself before the cross. And this is extremely offensive to human sensibility. The human sensibility that fell to sin by desiring to be like God... The human sensibility that lives in a culture that is deceived by the wicked one into desiring to usurp the authority of God. And in, a, and in a, a human heart, a depraved human heart, or in a depraved culture, or in a depraved society that is seeking to become like God, that is seeking to claim for themselves the title of God, that is seeking to control their own lives, how can there be anything more offensive than to hear that you are a sinner, that you are out of fellowship with the God of the universe, and that the only way you can come back into fellowship is to humble yourself before Jesus Christ. The offense of the cross is that you must humble yourself before the message of Christ or suffer an eternity in hell. Well, that's not fair. That's offensive. The offense of the cross is that only one road leads to God. And that road, that gate, that door is Jesus Christ alone. Well, that's offensive. Yes, it is. And so Paul concludes... Wishing that those who brought these false notions into the church would be cut off. Paul says they'll bear their judgment, but he doesn't just rest and say, leave them in the church. He says, I wish that they would be cut off, which trouble you. Interesting, that word cut off in the Greek literally means to amputate. It's a fantastic play on words here. These men, or that man as the case may be, in the church was preaching that they needed to be circumcised, right? Right? And here it is, these men that were preaching that the foreskin of the flesh needed to be cut off in order to be right with God. And Paul says, look, these guys that are preaching that the foreskin of your flesh needs to be cut off, here's what I'd like. I'd like for them to be cut out of the body. I would that they were cut off. That The metaphorical body of Christ, maybe you need to do a little cutting of that body and maybe you need to start with these ones who are troubling you. That they would be cut off from the communion of the church. In the same way they are calling on the church to cut off the foreskin of their flesh. Before 11 can spread any farther, before the cancer spreads throughout the body, the offending member either needs to repent or he needs to be removed. If you don't cut cancer out of the body, it grows it spreads, it takes over, it kills, it destroys, it collapses the body. You've got to cut it out or it will continue to grow. As we apply today, I simply want to walk back over the two most important statements that we saw in this chunk of Scripture and seek to bring them a little bit closer to home. So Paul said, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. You are free in Christ. The scriptures tell us that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. But liberty is not necessarily an easy thing to maintain. The concept might make sense if we were to carry it over into another context in an adult context, we might liken this to the idea of being a boss versus being an employee. Being a boss is a great privilege. It comes with certain privileges, it comes with um, certain extra benefits. You have more flexibility, you have uh, those benefits, maybe the pay is better, you have more privileges, those sorts of things, but you also have a great deal more responsibility. The employees, they do what they're told. The boss needs to initiate, he needs to plan. The employees can leave work at work, whereas a boss sometimes is required to work well beyond the time clock. The privileges and the blessings of the freedom that leadership brings, bring with it responsibilities. For children, we might liken this to the privileges and freedoms that you gain as you get older, and as you show yourself more capable and more responsible. As you show yourself responsible, you grow in freedoms. Parents, I would encourage you to not necessarily tie the freedoms that you give your children into their age as much as tying the freedoms you give your children into a level of responsibility. Because different people mature at different rates. But as you get older, as you grow in responsibility and maturity, you will gain more freedoms. You're able to do more things. You're able to do them more independently of your parents and your family. But with those privileges come responsibilities. And the more privileges you gain, the more ways are available to you to falter, to fail. The the smaller uh, number of privileges and freedoms you have, the smaller the arena in which you can fail or disappoint. As that grows so does your responsibility. As your freedoms grow, your responsibilities grow, also your accountability grows. As we consider spiritual freedom, something that God calls for us to stand fast in... This calling is one filled not just with spiritual freedom, but with spiritual responsibility. As a child of God, as an heir to the promises of God, we have been given divine expectations within which to live. And as we've been given the liberty in Christ to live, we have the responsibility of bearing out that liberty properly. The law was a checklist. Do it or don't do it. Blessing or cursing. Grace frees you from that kind of thinking, from that kind of operation, but expects in return that you direct yourself into Christ-like maturity and personal accountability for your actions. The first hymn we sung tonight was Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the final verse of that hymn says... Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The hymn writer speaks of grace being a debt. Isn't that interesting? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Not a debt that brings guilt, but a constraint. The compulsion that grace gives us to live out obedience. That the goodness of the Lord would bind us like fetters, like chains, to Christ. The responsibility of liberty... We've spoken of it many times. You're going to hear about it. You've heard about it. If you read the news, you hear about that among conservative pundits all the time. That liberty, freedom is not free. You see that on t-shirts all the time, right? Liberty demands responsibility. Liberty outside of responsibility is anarchy. We need to stand fast in our liberty. It's hard work. But it's worth it. It isn't easy But it is blessed. Don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of lazy Christianity whereby you simply fall back on a checklist of moral actions to gauge God's pleasure. And if you've done well with your checklist today, then you feel like you're fine with God. That's lazy. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. It's about your heart. And you and I know full well that you can do your checklist of Christian things and your heart can be as far from God as east is from west. You can run down the checklist of reading your Bible and of going to church and of wearing this and of not wearing that and of listening to this and of not listening to that and watching this and not watching that and you can completely miss a love for Christ. Don't allow yourself to fall into that trap. Because in doing so, you forfeit a thriving relationship with God in deference to self-righteous bondage. It's a cheap copy of the real thing. And I use that word bondage quite deliberately. You have been freed from the guilt of the law. You have been freed from the condemnation of the law. God has walked into the cell of guilt and judgment and unshackled you in Christ. So don't just sit in that cell with your loosened shackles hanging around your hands and your feet, wallowing in the guilt that Christ has released you from. Bear the responsibilities and joys of the freedom that you have in Christ that He has purchased for you and live for Him. So stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. The second phrase I'd like us to consider again as we close. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul warns here about the nature of false teaching. It takes very little false teaching to spoil large amounts of sound doctrine. Now as I say this, it is important that we understand what I'm going to describe as a difference between what we might say is doctrine and theology. And just bear with the way I'm describing this. Doctrine is a word which means teaching. Theology is a word which means the study of God. This breakup is not universally recognized. We might even call it a synthetic breakup. I'm breaking it up this way just so that I can get a point across. Throughout all of our lives, we will be learning and growing in our understanding of the Bible and its teachings. In some areas of our lives, this learning and growing will mean a dramatic departure from certain held beliefs. There might be a time in your Christian life where you have grown up thinking something, learning something, being told something, or simply understanding a piece of scripture a certain way, and at some point you're going to be confronted with another truth, and as you study it and as you bear things out, that truth will become what you believe to be accurate, more accurate, more correct, and it will supersede what you previously thought, and it will dramatically change the way you live your Christian life. In other areas, there will always be levels of ambiguity, where you hold to a certain perspective, but you are open to other perspectives, or you recognize the possibility of other perspectives. And while we operate under these different levels of conviction... We not only hold different ideas up to different levels of esteem, but we reflect our confidence in those ideas in different ways. When I speak of doctrine, when I speak of our doctrine, I speak of those things which we believe, we teach, we stake our Christian life upon. Those are the things which we are confident in from the Word of God. We have chapter and verse, and we stick to them. When I speak of our theology, and again, this is a synthetic breakup, so don't take this into... A systematic theology or anything like that. But when I speak of that theology, I speak of those things which we're still studying and learning and questioning. If I may put it this way, it's sort of like levels of security in a bank. Customers are allowed to come and go all day out of the bank, but they're only allowed so far into the bank. They're only allowed to come up to the tellers or to go back to the offices. In order to get beyond those tellers and get into a vault, you must pass a higher degree of security. You must be checked. You must be proved that you are not a threat. This is a similar idea. Your studies in regard to things of the Bible, your theology, your your inspection of different Thoughts and perspectives and theories with respect to God's Word are like the customers coming in and coming out. They're coming into your mind, you're, you're regarding them, you're recognizing them, and you're, you, you give them that ability to do so. You don't need to be as scrupulous with your admittance because you aren't giving those thoughts and ideas any authority in your life or allowing it to impact your life directly. But your doctrine, as I speak of it this evening, these are the things that you trust. These are the things that you have scrutinized. These are the things that you have proven and thus you are allowing into a a deeper circle of your life. These things are are found in the Word of God, found substantially. You allow these concepts to touch your life in a deeper way because you trust them. These are the concepts that become a, a part of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is warning in this passage that when you follow the wrong stuff, When you allow the wrong teaching into that inner circle, beyond the tellers and into the vault, into your doctrine, even just a small amount of the wrong stuff, false teaching, of true doctrinal error, it can do a great deal of spiritual damage in your life. One rotten apple, you know, can ruin a whole bag, one rotten potato can make the others go bad. False doctrine admitted into your trusted circle can quickly taint much of the rest of it. Now in, consistent, in consistency with the illustration I gave, I state that I do not discourage you from listening to people, from hearing spiritual ideas. We're not here to shut ourselves off to the Christian world around us. But I highly encourage you with every facet of teaching that you receive to keep it all in the lobby of your spiritual life until through prayer study of the scriptures counsel validation of the Holy Spirit you are confident that said teaching is true and consistent with the word of God and thus worthy to be admitted into the vault of your spiritual life we must go through this process of discernment because a little leaven leavens the whole lump Liberty in Christ is the great privilege of all who believe in Him unto salvation. It is not a life without complication, for liberty demands responsibility. Nor is it a life free from danger, for all liberty brings along with it not just the freedom to succeed, but also the freedom to fail. But God has given us every advantage. He's given us His Word, which tells us how to succeed. And He has given us His Spirit, through which over the next several weeks we'll learn we have been given advantages that no other generation of of God followers has ever had. And over the next several weeks we'll consider the capacity that we have to live within this freedom. How to tap into that capacity for our own lives. But as we close this evening. These two thoughts. Let's take them with us. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. And secondly. A little leaven. Leaveneth the whole lump. Let's close in prayer. Lord. We thank you for sound doctrine. Thank you that you have given us. Everything we need in your word. As pertaining to life and godliness. I pray for every believer in this room. From old to young. That we would stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And I pray for us as individuals. I pray for us as a church. That we would be ever vigilant against the dangers of leaven. The leaven of false doctrine may we take every truth claim and hold it up against the light of your word may we be consistent may we be faithful and we ask these things in Jesus name